If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 4, we'll be reading the entire chapter. You can find that on page 921 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading the entire chapter, but the text for this morning is just the first four verses. We'll be spending two weeks in chapter four, so today is the first one. Jonah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Thus far the reading of God's word. And may he add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what kinds of visitors would you like to see come through these church doors? It's easy to welcome people who already have a church background. There's little risk in what they bring to the table. I think we're also excited about seeing people brand new to the faith come into our doors. What a blessed opportunity to share the riches of Christ with someone who's never heard them before. But what about people who come with a little more baggage? What if a drug addict from a homeless camp came in our doors? Would we be excited to minister to him? or be skeptical that all he wants is a free handout? How about someone from a Muslim background? Would she be warmly welcomed, or would we be cautious about letting her know too much about us? And what about someone who lives as a homosexual? Would he feel loved even as we begin to speak truth into his life, or would he quickly sense that he's not welcome here as he is? So what is it that would possibly keep us from being welcoming to all as we are to some? Could it be that we struggle with the same temptation that Jonah faced? 
Like Jonah, are we content to see God's mercy poured out on people like us, but not on those who we think aren't worthy of his such mercy? If so, we have a pride problem, just like Jonah and the Israelites of his day. And in that vein, our theme for working through our text today is the Lord confronts Jonah's prideful spirit. And we are going to see how Jonah's pride manifests itself in three ways. First, Jonah's prideful anger. Second, Jonah's prideful theology. And third, Jonah's prideful heart. So let's begin by seeing how the Lord challenges Jonah's prideful anger. Jonah chapter 3 closed with God relenting of the disaster that he said he would do to the people of Nineveh. And that, and that mercy flew in the face of Jonah's prideful spirit. We read in verse 1 of our text that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. There are a couple of things that are striking about this opening verse. The first is that the Hebrew word for displeased is the same word that has been used throughout the book to describe the evil of Nineveh. In other words, Jonah thinks that God's relenting of the promised disaster on Nineveh is just as bad as all the wicked deeds that the Ninevites had repented of. Jonah is offended by God's mercy just as God was offended by Nineveh's sin. Talk about audacity. We can understand how sin would make a holy God angry, but Jonah's anger here is completely out of line given the situation. Now secondly, let's remind ourselves of where we are in the structure of the book. This is scene three of the second act, if you will, and it is set in parallel with chapter two, the third scene of act one. Both chapter two and four record for us how Jonah responds to the aftermath of his interaction with Gentile peoples. In chapter two, Jonah is praying a psalm of thanksgiving because God spared him from drowning. And now in chapter four, Jonah is praying in response to God sparing Nineveh. But this is no psalm of thanksgiving, is it? No, this is a prayer full of anger and bitterness. But what gives? Was Jonah any more deserving of deliverance than Nineveh? No, not at all. Jonah had disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh and was rightly tossed overboard to appease the storm of God's wrath. He was just as guilty in God's eyes as the people of Nineveh were. But while Jonah was thankful for the mercy showed to himself, he was livid that God would show the same mercy to Nineveh. Nothing but pride can explain this kind of response. Remember, too, that in, the book, in this book, Jonah is representative of all Israel. The entire nation had been the recipient of extravagant mercy that they didn't deserve. The most direct instance of this is the military success that God gave the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II. Even though they hadn't repented of the sin of idolatry, God still gave them victory over their oppressors. But there was also another time when God was merciful with his people. And Jonah himself makes reference to that in his prayer. Do the words of verse 2 sound familiar to you? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's description of God's attributes 
is nearly a quotation of God's own words on Mount Sinai, recorded for us in Exodus chapter 34. The context of those words in Exodus is the fallout of the golden calf. Remember that God said he would destroy all of Israel for their breach of faith, but Moses interceded for them and begged him to relent of the promised disaster. And then, as God passes before Moses, he declares about himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So far, Jonah's pretty accurate in his knowledge of God. But what about relenting from disaster? Did God say that too? Well, essentially. But listen to how much of the next verse that Jonah skips over. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jonah has left out all the language that speaks of God as holding the guilty accountable for their sins. In his anger over God's mercy, Jonah has created a simplified caricature of God in order to justify his anger. It's kind of like the kids who say to their mom, you never let us have dessert after supper on just the second day of such a tragedy. It's definitely not the truth, but it sure sounds good to the one making the accusation. Dear people of God, do we ever use scripture in this way? Do we ever pick and choose which parts of the Bible to highlight in order to justify our disdain for some types of people? It's easy to remember verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about all those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral, practicing homosexuals, drunkards, and the likes. But how quickly we forget what follows right after in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, if reading our Bibles ever makes us think like the Pharisee, boy, I sure am glad I'm not like those other people, then we have seriously abused God's word. If the thought of vile sinners being offered forgiveness makes us angry, then we don't understand our own sinfulness. The scriptures should never pat us on the back, but they should always leave us in awe of how great our Savior must have been. The Savior who bore the disaster that the Israelites of Mount Sinai, the Ninevites, and we rightfully deserved. If we fail to see that we are in need of just as much mercy and grace as all the other broken people around us, then pride is alive and well in us. The anger that Jonah displays is ugly, and it reveals something deeper going on. His anger and prayer also served to reveal Jonah's prideful theology. Jonah was a good Israeli patriot. He loved his nation. He wanted Israel to thrive and be a dominant force among the surrounding nations. And his desires weren't completely unfounded. The Lord had continually promised to preserve Israel and accomplish his purposes in the world through them. So what was Jonah missing? How did believing God's promises lead to bad theology? 
Jonah's big mistake, and really all Israel's too, was taking God's spiritual promises and applying them only materially. They were God's chosen people, Abraham's descendants. So surely God would preserve them and give them victory over their enemies, right? And if God loves Israel, then surely he hates his enemies too, right? But they seem to have forgotten the part of God's promise to Abraham, where he promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by his seed. But instead of looking forward to the day when God's new Israel would include all nations, Jonah saw the existence of Israel and Nineveh as mutually exclusive. Only one of them could exist long term. So if God is going to be faithful to his bride, Israel, then the logical conclusion is that Nineveh should be destroyed for her wickedness, wiped off the map. But Jonah has forgotten that Israel was called to be a witness to the world, not just dominate the world. Thus, he wants to keep all of God's mercy for himself and his own people. How selfish, how prideful. God showing mercy to Nineveh makes no sense to Jonah. And materially speaking, he's right to be concerned. It shouldn't be lost on us that the next generation of Assyrians from Nineveh would in fact go on to conquer Israel and send them into exile. Jonah's fears would ultimately be realized. But look again with me at verse 2, the, the second part. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In his prayer, Jonah highlights God's mercy because he's upset that the Ninevites received it. But he's also furious in regards to the attribute that he left out of his prayer, God's justice. How can God be just when he allows Nineveh to go unpunished for their great wickedness? Jonah knows what kind of people the Ninevites are, or at least had been. They were one of the most cruel nations on earth at that time. They had shed much blood and plenty of it was innocent blood. If there was a nation and a city that deserved a dose of God's justice, Nineveh would be it. And to make matters worse, God had even promised judgment on Nineveh. The message that God told Jonah to preach was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. With such a clear pronouncement of punishment, how could God flip the script? But again, Jonah seems to have forgotten something. In all the promises of the land of Canaan, God has said that if Israel was unfaithful to him and followed other gods, then he would cast them out of that promised land. And what other than unfaithfulness could you call the golden calves and all the Baal worship that had defined the northern kingdom from its inception? So if Jonah was actually concerned about God keeping his word, then he would have to admit that Israel too deserved to be destroyed for her acts of evil. But that's not Jonah's concern, is it? He just wants to send all of God's justice on Nineveh and Israel's enemies. How selfish, how prideful. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, do we ever fall prey to this kind of thinking? Do we ever get selfish with God's mercy? Does your attitude towards missions and evangelism reveal a heart that is perfectly happy to not share God's love? Are there certain types of people whom we subconsciously label as deserving of God's justice and not his mercy? 
I hope that you see the gulf in this type of theology. God's mercy? Oh yes, I'll take that over here, all for me. And his justice? Save that for those other people who really deserve it. The implication of this wrongful thinking is that there's a contradiction between God's mercy and his justice, as though they can't coexist in a single relationship. But what kind of God would that be? One who has to put his mercy on hold while carrying out justice, or putting his justice on hold to show mercy. Praise the Lord that the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth, is not a God like that. Our God never changes. He doesn't have to lay a part of himself aside to deal with us. How? It's all because of Christ. Left to our own, every single one of us, Israel and Nineveh included, deserve justice. We have all sinned and failed to live up to the holiness of God. But Christ came to live the sinless life that we could never live. And he died on the cross to take upon himself all the justice that our sins deserve. And because he did all this for us, those who put their faith in him can receive his mercy. In Christ, both God's mercy and his justice are perfectly fulfilled. And that is good theology. But as with all sin, it doesn't just show up out of the blue in our anger or in our theology. No, all sin originates from within us. So we now turn to see Jonah's prideful heart. The pride in Jonah's heart is what we have been teasing out of nearly every scene in this book. We no longer have to guess if Jonah's heart is in the right place or not. He tells us quite plainly. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The reason Jonah fled in the first place was because this is exactly what he didn't want to see happen. He didn't want Nineveh to even have the chance to be recipients of God's mercy and love. So what was the root of Jonah's pride that made him so upset here? Take a look with me at verse 3 of our text. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. For Jonah, it is better to die than to, have to, than to have to live and see God's mercy going out to the Ninevites. Jonah has lost his meaning in life. Now, if Jonah had remembered his beginner's catechism, he would have known that his chief purpose was supposed to be glorifying God and enjoying him forever but it seems that Jonah has made his chief purpose seeing Israel's enemies destroyed. Jonah has an idol, and that idol is Israel's national security. For Jonah, nothing else matters except that Israel politically succeed as a nation and continue to enjoy the favor that they supposedly deserve from God. So it should not surprise us one bit that Jonah made a poor missionary. He cared far more about himself and his country than he did for the lost people of Nineveh. This idolatry that Jonah displayed is not unique to him. Jonah's idol is typical of all Israel throughout too much of their history. God told them, serve me and you will be a blessing to the nations around you. 
But Israel responded by serving their own political interests at the expense of the nations around them. Idolatry, serving their own interests rather than God. And no matter how much patience and mercy they were shown in regards to their own sins, they still couldn't see how they deserved the same justice that they wanted poured out on the nations around them. That's what makes God's question to Jonah in verse 4 so convicting. Most versions translate this question quite literally, but one commentator put it in more colloquial terms. What right do you have to be angry? And that is exactly the question that Jonah and Israel needed to hear. How can they be angry about Nineveh receiving mercy when they themselves have been the recipient of countless occasions of mercy? And besides, what right does the clay have to criticize the choices of the potter? If God chooses to show his mercy to Nineveh, what's that to Jonah? Jonah's idolatry and pride are really raising their ugly head in his response to God's extravagant mercy. So what about us? Do we have any idols that make us prideful in our evangelism? Imagine for a moment that you are evangelizing to the unchurched in your community. And let's say you were given the perfect script, you had it memorized, for sharing the gospel with people to invite them to church. So there should be nothing holding you back except for your heart. What kinds of people would you choose not to converse with because you're not sure if you want their type in church with us? If your idol is very ordered and distraction-free church service, would you invite someone you suspect would shout out, Amen, throughout the service? If your idol is a church full of well-dressed, put-together people, would you invite a homeless person to come worship with us? What if your idol is the family unit? Would our church be a suitable place to invite a single mom with two kids out of wedlock? And if your idol is the appearance of holiness, would you be willing to invite a homosexual inside our doors to hear the gospel and to be taught the ways of God? Maybe your idol is safety in the status quo. Then you might not invite anybody at all. Is non-confrontation your idol? Then you'll likely only approach those who seem kind and cordial from the start. And with all these scenarios, if they don't seem like the church type, why would we hesitate from extending an invitation? What's the harm? Could it be because we're secretly afraid that God might prove to be a gracious and merciful God who stirs their hearts to accept accept our invitation? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, these are tough questions because they dig deep into our own hearts. In order to avoid the uncomfortable, we might just tell ourselves, there are other churches that are a better fit for people like that. But we need to see that kind of thinking for what it is an excuse. If we have the message of salvation, how can there be a better place for people to hear that message than right here in our midst? After all, as Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So dear congregation, how much pride is left in our own hearts? Does our pride lead to any bad theology as far as who is welcome into the kingdom of heaven? 
And do we face any bitterness or anger when we hear of churches who are ministering to the worst of sinners? If so, we need to repent of our prideful spirit and ask the Lord to give us his heart for the lost. And part of that process is coming to know how much we ourselves need a savior. In the face of our pride, we need to be asked this question. What right do we have to withhold the message of salvation? And if we answer honestly, our answer should be none. For God has been just as merciful to us as he would be to any other sinner who came to faith in him. There is nothing about our spiritual pedigree or good works or doctrinal knowledge that makes us any more deserving of mercy than our neighbors. And it is only when we see how sinful we ourselves are that we can let go of our pride. Brothers and sisters, we serve a loving and merciful God. So when we send out missionaries, pray for them, and witness to our neighbors and family members, we are witnessing on behalf of a God who delights in mercy. And just as God gave Jonah great success in Nineveh because of his mercy, so too we should count on that same thing today. The most hardline militants against Christ and also the most hardened atheists are powerless before the great power of God's grace. Praise God that our guilt has been cleared away by Jesus Christ so that we can be shown mercy. And let us never shy away from telling others of God's amazing grace. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, May the power of your word be felt even in our hearts today. Thank you that you are a merciful God. We stand in awe of your compassion for the lost, and we pray that we will share that same love. Forgive us when we give in to our fear of man and fail to share your gospel message with those around us. Give us the desire and courage to share the glorious hope we have in Christ. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.